Hey listeners, Harry here with another episode of Air Power and International Security. Now we've talked quite a bit about space on this show. We've had conversations about what war in space looks like, how space power facilitates military operations on planet Earth, the laws that apply to outer space, and the international rivalries that have shaped space power. Today I'm talking with Alish Nadal, all about what the UK is doing in the space domain. I'll be asking Alish about the types of capabilities the UK has, how the UK armed forces are set up to organise space power, and what the future of UK space power might look like. Alish is currently doing his PhD on the history of space thought and policy within the UK armed forces, based at King's College London, where he is also part of the Freeman Air and Space Institute. And before that, he also worked at the European Space Policy Institute in Vienna. So, if you want to know more all about Skynet, no, not the organisation responsible for creating Terminators and destroying planet Earth, I'm talking about the satellites that the UK currently has in orbit, then keep listening. Hi Alish, thank you so much for joining me today to talk about the UK in space and what the UK is currently up to in terms of operating in and from space. Now, obviously, the Americans have been actively involved in space and utilising this domain for some time now. But when it comes to the UK, I get the sense that we're not exactly a major player when it comes to space power. Is this a fair assessment? Uh, hi, Harry. Thank you so much for, uh, for the invitation. So yeah, I think that's a bit the, the million-dollar question of uh, whether the UK is a major space power. I think uh, ex-Prime Minister uh, Boris Johnson said um, we're becoming Galactic Britain. Um, and, and I think, I mean, that's more politics than a, than a first strategic um, outlook. Uh, but I would say it really depends on the metrics one uses to evaluate what space power is. So are we assessing, for instance, the government spending on space? Are we assessing the health of the national uh, industry? Are we assessing in terms of what capabilities the UK um, owns currently or is it about the web of alliances that the UK can tap into? Um, and in this case, usually it's, it's the US. Uh, so I would say that depends a bit in the eye of the beholder, so to speak. But to, to not avoid the question, I would say that the consensus is usually that uh, the UK is still not a major space power. Um, there was a report by the Defence Select Committee in the House of Commons uh, last year. And uh, the report said that the UK was a three-tire power after Japan, Italy, um, and other middle powers. And I think that's usually what the consensus is at the moment. If we take, for instance, France as a, as a sort of point of comparison, uh, and now we take it to a sort of sovereign or spending-based um, approach of analysis, France, for instance, has consistently spent more on uh, space, both from the military side, but also from the civilian side than the UK. It also owns a wider range of capabilities from optical ISR, from um, satellite communications, which the UK obviously also owns, uh, from space situational awareness, uh, from signals intelligence satellites. Um, and again, I think we'll go um, later to that, I guess, but the UK does not own this sort of wide range of, of capabilities. So I would say, no, the UK is not a major space power yet, but I think there's there are steps being done in the right direction. And to end on a positive note, the fact that the UK does not have many legacy systems other than Skynet, um, I think that's also sort of a, um, an advantage in that the future space architecture of the UK can sort of incorporate best practices, lessons learned, uh, learned from other countries, 
Um, so I think that's that's something positive that the UK can build on. So yeah, that's to end it on an optimistic note. That's actually a really interesting way of thinking about how to measure and how to assess a country's space power. And hopefully we can address some of those metrics through the course of this episode. Now, although the UK may not be a world-leading space power, how long has the UK been involved in space? When did UK space operations begin? Um, I think we can trace it back to the sort of uh, nuclear enterprise. So by the mid-1950s, um, the UK, so the Soviet Union was improving its um, air defences. Um, the UK back then had the uh, V-force uh, for its nuclear deterrence, but they felt that the credibility of the British nuclear deterrent was sort of being degraded as, as time uh, wore on. So they started investigating other technologies. And among them, I'm not going to go through the all spe- uh, specifics, was the Blue Streak um, Intermediate um, Ballistic Missile Program. Now, the program was cancelled as a military uh, vehicle, uh, but then it was announced that they would investigate its merits for a satellite launcher. Uh, so because, again, most um, missiles, uh, ballistic missiles, have dual use sort of, or, or can be retasked as a satellite launcher, uh, that's what the UK envisaged in the beginning. Um, so basically, it would be a three-stage rocket. But the problem was, and, and I think that's been an enduring problem uh, for UK space power, was it was perceived that it was too expensive. So essentially, at some point, uh, the UK said, okay, we cannot build a sovereign uh, capability on satellite launchers, so let's try to do a joint venture with other European countries. But that ultimately also failed. Um, The UK still failed, and I think it was the Labour government that eventually withdrew from the project. Um, So I would say that this was the first time that the UK was sort of uh, engaging with space. And again, it's it's important to, to note here that Eventually, the UK did launch a satellite in space in 1971 uh, with a Black Arrow uh, vehicle, but that program was also cancelled on the same year. So clearly, there was not much appetite to to keep investing on on this capability. The UK did uh, have uh, continues to have success in satellite communications. Uh, So the UK in 1969 launched via the US the first military uh, communication satellite in geostationary orbit. uh, That was Skynet 1. And again, this is not a story of a, of a, um, a sweet ride of just deploying satellites, uh, and that was easy. I mean, uh, some satellites were uh, lost on launch. Skynet 3 was also uh, cancelled. But ultimately, now there's been five uh, series of Skynet, and this has been, I think, the successful story of, of the UK in space. And then, arguably, you could say that in 1963, there was the ballistic missile early warning system in uh, the area of Filingdale's base. And whereas, as the name indicates, it's not primarily tasked with space missions, it can be repurposed for um, space domain awareness. So we could argue that this is another capability that even if it's ground-based, it's not in space, it does have a a sort of space-related mission as well, even if it's not the the primary one. So 1969 is usually the official date from which the UK establishes its footprint in space. So quite a long history then, and perhaps a longer history than many people actually realise. So given this relatively long history of UK space power, how important is it to UK security? The reason I ask is because the majority of threats that the UK faces, as outlined in the integrated review and the subsequent refresh, are mostly related to things like terrorism, cyber activity, organised crime, and now we might add pandemics and economic crises. 
most of which aren't necessarily going to be prevented or mitigated by space power. So how important is space power to UK security? Yeah, and, and, and I would agree with you. I think um, some people think that the UK entered the space uh, domain very recently, but uh, again, um, it's been uh, several decades now, and there was a lot of thinking going on about space in the MOD back in the 70s and the 80s. So clearly, the, the, um, the domain is not new for, for, the, for the UK. Um, and I think, so in terms of the utility of space for the UK, I think there's been historically two turning points for, for the UK's engagement uh, in space. I think the first one could be traced back to the Falkland War in um, uh, 1982. And back then, the, it was mostly the Royal Navy. They understood the value of, of having satellite communications for its global uh, power projection. So much so that after the, this war, uh, there was a paper circulated in the MOD, in the Directorate of Naval Plans, where there was a discussion on whether it would be pertinent to have also a national uh, space program for um, intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance to, to sort of complement the, the satellite communications program of Skynet. And it was interesting because the discussions, there were some discussions within the, the Naval Directorate, and some said that the war suggested the U.S. could not be relied upon to provide ISR in a timely manner. But ultimately, others within the same directorate said that's not a lesson that we want to uh, draw from, from the war. Uh, so that program was also sort of cancelled or was not seen through. So I think from that point onwards, the Royal Navy understood the full value of space. So I, I would um, identify this as the turning point. And then the 1991 Gulf War is, I think, the watershed moment for uh, the Royal Air Force and the British Army. Um, again, it's, it's been many times uh, called the first space war for, for the contribution that uh, ISR, uh, GPS, um, satellite communications had in the war. And I think it's then when the Royal, uh, the RAF and the Army say, okay, uh, space is, is, is critical um, and it's a sort of uh, force multiplier. So, it's, uh, so that's, that's the point. Um, since then, I think, again, with the emergence of out-of-area operations uh, in the early 2000s, space becomes ever more important. And if we fast forward to the present, there's the multi-domain integration agenda with the five operational domains, including space. And it's been, again, um, officially acknowledged time and again uh, these past few years that space plays a critical role in enabling the other domains, in achieving informational advantage. So, so yeah, I think the UK would not be able now to operate without satellites, whether it's British satellites or US satellites or commercial satellites. Um, and again, if anything, the war in Ukraine has provided further evidence of the space contribution to, to the war effort. Um, so yeah, I would say it's, it's uh, just to sum up this bit, I would say, yeah, it's very relevant, it's critical, and I think the question is not whether space is relevant, or, um, but whether it's so relevant that uh, the UK needs to own the capabilities, right? I think that's, that's the current debate. Given how relevant space power is to UK military operations and therefore security, does the UK have a clear space strategy? Uh, yes. The most recent strategy, you have the National Space Strategy that was published in 2021, uh, and then this is cross-government. Right, so it's a sort of national vision of space and, and try to provide coherence across the different um, uh, ministries. But then, more important for space power is the defense space strategy that was released on the first uh, of February 2022. Uh, so yeah, I think that's the main document. I don't want to go into much detail on on the strategy, but uh, I think there are three important elements to consider. The first one is that it 
again, sort of echoes the um, old collaborate access of the integrated review. The UK acknowledges that without the commercial sector or uh, key allies, including uh, the US, but also the other uh, five ICE countries and Germany and France, the UK needs them to, to sort of uh, maximize or capitalize on, on space power. And then it was announced that there would be a defense space portfolio, uh, but it's essentially announcing the investments in the next 10 years. Um, so up to 2030, 2031. So that was very important because that also signals to the industry what's the interest of the UK the next 10 years on space uh, from a defense perspective. And then the third uh, takeaway, which I think it was mentioned in passing, but I, I think it's, it has potential, it's that it was suggested that the upcoming Skynet uh, Series 6 uh, fleet could incorporate what it's called secondary payloads or uh, hosted payloads. So again, the payloads are basically what it's to accomplish the mission, right? So a payload could be, for instance, an optical sensor. And for a country like the UK, that it's um, a middle spacefaring uh, nation, uh, it might be too expensive to develop both the satellite bus and the satellite payloads and deploy them into space. But if we already have, for instance, Skynet, you might want to use a secondary payloads uh, for Earth observation or for other um, or for other functions, even uh, space domain awareness. And this is not the first time that this uh, was suggested. The third uh, series of Skynet, which eventually was canceled, there was the idea to uh, incorporate a payload, an infrared sensor, to detect nuclear explosions on Earth. Eventually, again, the satellite was scrapped, but I think it's interesting. It's an interesting concept, and um, I'm hoping we see this in the future, in either Skynet or in other um, British satellites. Uh, so beyond the defense space strategy, you have the UK Space Command a capability management plan. Uh, it was it's been only published once, and essentially it's a bit the yeah the the plan of investments in the next five year window and ten year window. Um, so far, it's mostly um, ISR and satcoms and space domain awareness. But I'm hoping that there will be an emphasis on other capabilities as well. And this is an iterative process, right? So periodically, the space command will update these uh, capability plans, uh, and I think that's a good idea in terms of. You know, if, if needs change or threats change, the um, UK is flexible enough to, to invest in other capabilities. And finally, you have the space power doctrine, which traditionally, since 2009, it was published alongside the air power doctrine, first within the RAF and then as a joint uh, publication with the other services. But to be fair, it was not very well uh, sort of developed. I think it was more of a box ticking exercise. But with the 2022 doctrine, it's independent from. Um, from air power, uh, it's still joined with, with the three services, but I think it's quite interesting. And, and again, there's, there's a, lot, a lot to unpack there, but perhaps the important uh, element is the four roles of UK space power envisaged in the doctrine. So you have space support uh, to operations, which would essentially be how space can support uh, military operations on Earth. Uh, you have space control, and then you have uh, space service support. And that would be, for instance, uh, for launching operations. And then you also have Spain domain awareness. So these are the four roles that the UK considers for space. And I think with these documents, there's, there's quite a comprehensive overview of what the UK is thinking at the moment. Um, so yeah, and this has all been published in the past two or three years. I get the impression that the UK's space strategy is actually quite realistic. You know, you compare that to the integrated review, which makes really grand claims about Britain's place in the world and what can be achieved by Britain on a very small budget, the space strategy accepts Britain's place as a middling space power. Is that a fair assessment? 
I think to, to be fair, maybe because it's a sector of strategy, but I do think it's 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 more realistic that sometimes UK, you're, I mean, to be fair, many national security strategies of trying to do everything everywhere all at, all at once. But yeah, so I think it's more realistic. But I think, for instance, industry does want a bit more guidance on on where the U, which capabilities the UK plans to invest on, right? So there's been um, with the capability management plan and also with the defense space portfolio, there's some guidance. Uh, but I think the UK will publish in the upcoming months some documents on what do they expect from industry. Uh, and I think that's a good idea, especially because industry is bound to play a, um, a significant role in this domain. Absolutely. And I'm sure we'll talk more about the importance of industry uh, and commercial firms in space. But now that you've set out what UK space strategy looks like, I wondered if I could just pull on a theme that you discussed there, which is that space power doctrine has now been separated from air power doctrine. And this leads me to the question, well, how is UK space power organised? How is the UK military set up to run and operate space power? We have Space Command, which is tri-service, right? Which reinforces that need to separate air and space power doctrine. Uh, yes, indeed. So I would say, yeah, the, the Space Command would be the, the sort of highlight of how space power is sort of channeled and maximized in, in the UK. So the UK Space Command was stood up, I think, uh, 2021. And it's, as you said, it's a joint command. So it's staffed with uh, Royal Navy, uh, RAF and, and Army officers. But again, the headquarters are in uh, High Wycombe, right, which is an RAF base. And it's where the National Space Operations Center was or still is. And then now the Space Command has also taken over uh, the RAF uh, filing deals, operational control, uh, which is where the ballistic missile early warning system is. So I would say that its primary mission, uh, as it stands now, is to provide uh, space domain awareness and to basically understand what's going on in space. And then also the Space Command is now planning or providing focus on the capability uh, front. And it's also hopefully by next year, by the end of next year, uh, they will have created the UK Space Academy, which is a bit just to generate uh, knowledge about space across the the defense enterprise and across the services. It should have been perhaps already done, but it's uh, it's good that at least for now it's, it's going forward. But it's also important to mention that, again, because it's in, the, in an area of base, it also signals that the Space Command is under the budgetary control of the RAF. So this is something to take into account. It's not an independent sort of um, space-dedicated organization, as in uh, there's not a space mindset, perhaps, uh, one could argue. It's still uh, very much grounded on the RAF. And then you also have the UK Strategic Command, which, again, embodies a bit the multi-domain integration agenda. And the UK Strategic Command now uh, manages the contract with Airbus, which operates the Skynet 4 and 5 series. So in terms of uh, providing support to military uh, operations on Earth, it's still UK Strategic Command that does this. Uh, It's expected that with the uh, introduction of the Skynet 6 fleet, then it will be Space Command taking over. But for now, the Skynet is is under the uh, purview of UK Stratcom. And then you also have, I think, the Space Directorate at the MOD. It's of recent creation, and it's basically tasked with uh, formulating space policy and space strategy, but it also deals with international collaboration and, and partnerships. And I think, for instance, so here there's liaise with um, the Combined Space Operations Initiative, which is the primary alliance of the UK in space, uh, and it's the five eyes plus France and Germany. So here the space directorate uh, plays, plays a big role. Of course, you also have civilian bodies like the UK Space Agency. Uh, you also have the National Space Board, which is sort of 
uh, cross-government um, organization. But I would argue here that the, the footprint of defense is quite small, right? I mean, the MOD is the only ministry, of course, tasked with defense, but then you have many other ministries that have an interest or a stake on space and are not defense-oriented. So I would say in terms of numbers, it's, it's sort of uh, a minority. I think the National Space Board is mostly civilian and scientific and industrial, uh, not so much defense-oriented. Uh, but again, that might change in the future as well. So these would be sort of the main organizations, Space Command, Strategic Command, and Space Directorate. So now that we've covered the conceptual elements and the organizational structure of UK space power, I wonder if you could tell us more about the specific assets and activities of the UK in space. You've obviously referenced Skynet now a couple of times, so you've given us a bit of a hint as to what the UK is up to. But how many series of Skynet are still active and what sorts of activities are they engaged in? Yeah, so I, again, if, if we take a sovereign approach, right, of, of the capabilities that the UK government has at its disposal uh, and uh, owns, Skynet is the jewel of the crown. Again, as mentioned before, the first uh, Skynet satellite was launched in 1969. It was manufactured and launched by the US. So it would not be until Skynet 2 that it was manufactured uh, by the UK, in the UK. Then again, the Skynet 3 was cancelled. Uh, essentially, the, the rationale was there was the withdrawal from the east of Suez. The main theater of operations became Europe. Um, so it was deemed that there was no need for global coverage. Um, and I think we probably will touch upon the, the relationship with the U.S. later on. Uh, but I think here the U.S. Uh, played a role in the cancellation of Skynet uh, indirectly, um, Skynet 3, um, very indirectly. And now you have Skynet 4. It's important to remember that the, um, the first series of Skynet were mostly funded by the Royal Navy, which again goes back to the idea that the Royal Navy was the sort of the champion of space among the services, uh, at least until the end of the Cold War. But the Royal Air Force operated the first uh, series of Skynet. And I'm not sure I'm going to pronounce this right, but that was in the RAF base of Oak uh, Hangar. So the Skynet fleet was operated by the RAF. But if we fast forward a bit with the introduction of Skynet 5, um, the UK introduced uh, what it's called a private finance initiative. So the control of the Skynet fleet was delegated, so to speak, to Airbus, Defence and Space. Uh, so since then, both the Skynet 5 and the Skynet 4 before that are being operated by a private company. So the RAF is not operating anymore, the, the Skynet fleet. And I think the same will happen with Skynet 6. Some contracts have not been awarded yet, so we'll have to, to see. So yeah, that would be Skynet, and the functions is mostly strategic and tactical level communication. So initially, the first um, batch of Skynet was mostly strategic communication. So from um, uh, the UK to the overseas military bases, uh, fixed communications. Uh, but then with the introduction I think, of Skynet 4, you have tactical level communication. So essentially mobile terminals, mostly for the Royal Navy. And now it serves, it serves uh, at the tactical level and at the strategic level. But it also serves the NATO allies and um, other countries, right? So the UK, through Skynet, has provided bandwidth to other allies in NATO uh, with different frameworks. Uh, but it also has provided uh, some uh, capability to other uh, countries like Australia. So I don't know if the Memorandum of Understanding is still active, but a few years ago they had one where basically the Australian Defence Forces could use Skynet uh, when they were operating in the Indian Ocean. Uh, so this is something to keep in mind as well, that Skynet is both for the uh, British Armed Forces, but also for its allies. So that would be 
the core capabilities in space. But if we define space as being also the ground systems, again, you have the ballistic missile or the warning system in Filingdales. Again, this is not a dedicated SDA sensor, right? Its primary task is it's, again uh, ballistic early warning, but it can be repurposed and retasked to monitor space. And it has traditionally been part of the space surveillance network of the US. So it has been of value to the US as well, uh, the, the base at Filingdales. And then if we take a more flexible approach to what constitutes a British capability, you have the OneWeb low Earth orbit constellation, uh, satellite communications constellation. Uh, the UK government has a stake um, on the company. I think it's around 20%. But I think that OneWeb is actually quite interesting because there's a debate now on whether the UK government uh, currently has a golden share. Um, so that means that it has some strategic control over uh, OneWeb. So it can use OneWeb for defense purposes as well. But the future is not so clear because I think here there's a tension between a value for money approach. Uh, so the idea is if the UK or the argument goes, if the UK um, abdicates its golden share, then uh, potentially OneWeb would um, compete for contracts uh, in the European Union, uh, especially now with the new Iris um, constellation envisaged um, uh, by the European Commission. But if it does so, then it foregoes the sort of sovereign control over the OneWeb constellation. So I think it will be interesting in the future to see how this develops and whether sort of the national security concerns are prioritized over industrial or economic concerns or not. So OneWeb, is, it's, it's an interesting case. And I would say these are the sort of the overview of British capabilities at the moment. Jinho, I never realized that the Royal Navy were the ones that took the lead in arguing for UK space power. But it makes perfect sense now. It seems obvious, once you've pointed it out, that ships that are sailing around the globe need secure and constant communications with London. So, yeah, I hadn't thought of it like that, but I'm glad you pointed it out. I find this relationship between the MOD or the UK and Airbus, who operate Skynet, fascinating. How does that work? How are they operated by the military on a day-to-day basis? Do they have to speak to Airbus to see if they can utilise these satellites? I mean, what does this contractual relationship mean for day-to-day operations? The UK has full access to the Skynet constellation, right? So in practice, it's as though uh, the UK was controlling the constellation. I think this was done mostly because um, PFIs have, uh, on paper, have proven uh, cheaper. But the idea is that uh, Airbus provides this service, guaranteed service, to British armed forces. And if there's any spare capacity, then it can sort of supply bandwidth to uh, British allied countries, but also um, other, other entities. Uh, so the UK, in practice, has um, can have access to the Skynet constellation anytime it wants. And again, uh, for the next Skynet, there was a contract awarded to Babcock recently on the ground uh, management of Skynet. So we might be seeing actually um, the Airbus transferring operational control to Babcock, I think, in, in, in a couple of years, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so, so yeah, for, for all purposes, the UK retains... Uh, sovereign control over the constellation. It's It has proved to be quite an effective tool, I would say. Now, this at first glance might seem odd that the UK is basically contracting out a key and vital strategic asset, right? But I guess this is about making space power more affordable. You mentioned that bandwidth can be supplied to allies and partners. Do they pay for this privilege? Is this a way of funding UK space power? 
Yes, indeed. Uh, so I think the, the, the idea is, of course, affordability. Um, usually there's different mechanisms through which you can access space services, right? So uh, you can uh, build it your, uh, yourself, manufacture it yourself, and, and then have operational control. You can um, collaborate with allies. Uh, you can have a long lease, commercial long lease with the company, or you can have it ad hoc as well um, on demand. But what's interesting is that this sort of uh, private finance initiative uh, was sort of an innovation, uh, at least in space, on how a commercial entity or a private industry can cooperate with a national government. Um, so I think that's that's another. Um, it's been sort of an innovation, I think, in managing uh, space services that the UK had done back in I think 2007. That's when when the PFI uh, came into effect. So yeah, I, I would say that it's the fact that they will continue to do so with the new batch of, of Skynet, uh, of the Skynet family, I think shows that the UK is, is overall quite happy with, with the results that it has provided. Indeed. Now, earlier on, you mentioned that one of the ways we could assess UK space power was through looking at the relationships that the UK has with major space powers. Most notably, presumably, is the US. So how reliant is the UK on US space power for military operations or for other activities that might be facilitated by space power? Um, so I think if we take uh, sovereign satellite communications as being sort of one of the pillars of UK space power, the other pillar is its special relationship with, with the US. Um, so historically, I would say that the UK, every time it has uh, found itself sort of in a budgetary straitjacket, it has resorted to the US for access on, on uh, ISR, but also space domain awareness, uh, GPS. So that how it has played out it historically. So the UK, um, there might be a proposal to do a national space program. Um, it's deemed too expensive uh, or maybe not of strategic interest at that time. And then they say, okay, we might as well access US capabilities instead. And so let me put you an example. Uh, in the 80s, Margaret Thatcher, during, uh, during her government, um, there was the option to um, have a space program on uh, signals intelligence. So that was uh, the project was called Zircon. And the idea was that, yeah, they would deploy at least a satellite for signals intelligence to intercept communications. And eventually it was scrapped because it was considered too expensive. And the rationale was we can uh, rely on the US uh, and its spy satellites for this. Uh, and this has been an ongoing pattern. Um, and I've, I've read some documents of the MOD from the 80s and the 70s. And again, when I was talking about space program for ISR after the Falklands War, you do see some pushback from, from um, certain quarters of the MOD saying, we don't need ISR because we have the US. Right? Uh, so so that, I think that's, that's how it has played out. Um, so I would argue that this alliance, in practice, it has a, um, I mean, unquestionably positive net result but it can be a double-edged sword. Um, so on one hand, this, you are offered this range of capabilities and services that the UK would not be able to afford uh, by virtue of, of, of it being a, a middle power in space. And again, it has been uh, proven very, very useful in the Operation Corporate. Uh, the US retasked its spy satellites to intercept communications of the Argentinian uh, military forces, and that was very useful for the Royal Navy. So clearly, I'm not suggesting that the UK should sort of decouple from the US in any way. But on the other hand, I think that over-reliance on the U.S. has been identified by some experts as, as being a, an obstacle preventing the U.K. from building its uh, profile in space. Um, so by implication, looking at the future, I would say the U.S. will, of course, remain the chief ally for the U.K. Uh, in space. Uh, 
uh, again, there's they've signed enhanced space cooperation um, agreements uh, to deepen cooperation in space. They are part of the Combined Space Operations Initiative. Um, so clearly, that's how it's going to play out. But I would argue that there needs to be deeper cooperation with other allies. So UK Space Command has recently signed agreements with South Korea and Japan. But as far as I know, they are basically on personal exchange, information sharing, and training. And I would like to see more um, agreements on joint capability development, right? So to not put all the eggs in one basket, in this case, the US, I think the UK could perhaps build upon uh, GCAP or even the second pillar of the AUKUS deal and try to cooperate on, on capabilities with Australia, Japan, uh, and also European countries. So yeah, I would say the US has been essential and it will remain so, but I think the UK has to diversify a bit its, its alliances in space. What does the future of UK space power look like then? You've given some ideas there about how the UK could work with more allies and partners to share the financial burden of new uh, and additional capabilities. But what is the UK doing? What steps is it taking right now to enhance UK space power uh, and to augment its capabilities in that particular domain? Yeah, so here I so there are some planned capabilities. As I mentioned before, there's the space, the defense space portfolio. Uh, so by 2025, the UK should launch Skynet 6A. This has already been awarded to uh, Airbus uh, Defense and Space. And then there's four more satellites planned from, I think, 2026 to 2041. So it's, it's a long time scale. And these contracts have not been awarded yet. Um, and this will be the Skynet 6 series. So, of course, um, this, this is a big chunk of, of the uh, investments on space in the, in the upcoming years. And then, interestingly, you'll have uh, what is called the Starry Program, which will be an ISR constellation the first sovereign constellation for the UK. And I'm expecting that there will be um, optical as well as synthetic aperture radar uh, sensors in this constellation, uh, which are also called sort of an all-weather capability sensors in the case of radar. And so probably in the next couple of years, we are going to see some demonstration satellites being deployed in space to test the design of, of the starry architecture. But on top of that, and I think if, if you have a closer look um, to that, both uh, the Skynet and the ISR, it's basically fulfills the role of space support to operations, right? So it's basically space looking down on Earth. And I think in the future, it would be interesting to see an emphasis on space control. Again, this is something that is envisaged in the uh, space power doctrine of the UK, or both offensive space control and defensive space control. Uh, so I think that that's an emphasis that it's missing. But as the UK fields a higher number of satellites, I would assume that there will be a shift to the theme of protect and defend. And again, maybe these capabilities are being discussed now in a classified manner. So, of course, we don't know the, the full extent of, of what's going on behind the scenes. But I would hope that there will be a higher investment on, on space control. And with that also comes come space domain awareness, right? So you have to be able to see, to, to sort of um, deny or, or, um, the enemy or to protect yourself. And this, of course, might be too much uh, for the UK. Uh, again, there, there will still be budgetary limitations. But again, uh, you have different options. You can have secondary payloads. Um, you can have closer relationships with uh, commercial entities, with the US. Uh, there's been also a proposal uh, to install a ground-based radar in uh, the Falklands. Because currently, there's a, there's a gap in the southern hemisphere to monitor space. Um, so I think that could be an interesting capability to also plug the gaps for the U.S., right? So, and I think this, this is another thing that I didn't mention before, is that 
oftentimes the UK has thought in terms of how can we be of value to the US to sort of improve its bargaining position when it needs to access SDA data, for instance. So I think that that's something that the UK has to keep in mind. I'm not saying that the US should direct uh, what the UK invests on, but I do think the UK should take into account what the US needs um, to be a valuable partner rather than a valued customer, so to speak. Well, as we're talking about the future of UK space power, I can't let you go without asking you about your thoughts about the potential or the likelihood of an independent UK space force to mirror what the Americans have done. Do you think it's likely or will it ever be likely that the UK has its own space force? The rationale behind having an independent air force is that the people in it bring a degree, a higher degree of air mindedness. So don't we need an independent space force to bring some sort of space mindedness, if we can call it that? Um, yeah, I mean, that's a very good question. Uh, I think in all fairness, I think creating a separate space force now would be a bit premature for the US, uh, for the UK. In the case of the US, the arguments usually to create an independent space force were uh, to centralize the authority on space into a single chain of command, also to create space mindedness. The argument goes, if you have uh, the Air Force uh, taking care of space, there might be a competition between investing on space capabilities um, and air capabilities, right? And, and the idea is that if it's the Air Force, uh, for example, they will prioritize their domain center capabilities, right? So, so that was another argument for, for the Space Force. And the other argument, of course, uh, would be to sort of create a space-centric workforce, again, this space mine um, for, for the U.S. So these were the arguments in the U.S., but I would say bringing it back to the U.K., Again, the UK has just recently put in place um, certain organizations to sort of maximize its, its space power, right? So you have the Space Command, which has taken the mantle on, on, on planning for capabilities. But on the operational side, now you have, of course, the Space Command is uh, taking care of monitoring and analyzing what's going on in space. So in a way, you are also creating, um, to an extent, a space workforce, right? You are basically uh, creating or um, improving the space expertise across across defense in the UK. And again, in that line, the UK Space Command will create the Space Academy by the end of next year. So I think there are things being done that tackle some of these arguments that were espoused in the US. So again, yeah, there's progress on capability, there's progress on space education, and there's progress on, on the operational side of things. And again, at the doctrinal level, you now see an independent doctrine, right? So you do see, to an extent, um, some space-minded thinking. And we also have to take into account that the UK does not have the same budget as the US. And I think popping the US just for the sake of it, I don't think that's, that's a very sensible approach. I believe it's better to sort of follow incremental steps rather than revolutionary ones, see how the UK Space Command uh, manages to consolidate uh, its missions in the upcoming years. And then perhaps in the future, uh, you may have a separate space force. Uh, but I don't, think, I don't think that's happening anytime soon. And also, again, then that would beg the question, should it be an independent space force? Uh, should it be a sort of um, semi-independent? And if so, should it remain in the Air Force or should it remain in the Navy? Uh, and that's something very interesting because usually the analogies in academia about space power are with maritime uh, analogies, right? Not with air power ones. And you mentioned before, and I wanted to come back to that, that sometimes air and space come together and it's aerospace power. And I would say that this is often uh, 
at least when I've seen the terms aerospace power, this has been often in um, official documents by air forces or on um, journals affiliated to an air force. Uh, so I think it's more of a, an inter-service competition of who grabs this domain uh, rather than an honest uh, sort of uh, approach to this aerospace power. So I think there needs to be a conversation on that. But again, it's, it's too soon to tell, I would say. Uh, so I don't see that happening any anytime soon. I'm glad I'm not the only one that finds the conflation of air and space slightly puzzling. There doesn't seem to be many features that make them similar in terms of how you operate there or how you can influence actors from those domains. And from what you've told us there, it sounds like the UK is finding a happy compromise in terms of how it operates space power. It certainly can't afford a separate and independent space force, but nor does it really need one right now. And that's probably a really useful place to end our discussion. So it only goes for me to say thank you so much for coming on the show, Alish. You've given us an excellent overview of UK space power, what the UK has been doing in space, how the UK military have structured themselves to operate space power, and you've given us some food for thought about what the UK could be doing in the future to maximise the benefits from this particular domain. So thank you very much for coming on the show. Uh, thank you for inviting me. It's, it's been a pleasure. What a great episode and what a wonderful guest. Alish has clarified quite a lot there about the UK space power and the relationships with key allies and partners that are so crucial in this very expensive endeavour. Next week on the show, we have Dr. Margot Tudor telling us about the history of the UN's peacekeeping missions and their role in maintaining international security. Thank you for listening. See you next time.